and welcome to episode 5 of CabotCast with me, Alan Kennedy. And in this episode, I have been speaking to the speakers at the Cabot Institute Annual Lecture, which took place in January 2018. So there's three speakers at that event. It was held in the World's Memorial Building, and they were from three different disciplines. Uh, one broadly was an environmental scientist, one an engineer, and one in policy and management. And as such, they have three different slants on science and innovation and about how technology and innovation presents both opportunities and challenges within their field of research. So, first of all, I was speaking to Bernard Stark, who is a researcher in electronic and electrical engineering at the University of Bristol, about what his talk was about. My talk was about electronics that uses so little power that you would never ever need to replace batteries in devices. Um, and so I, I presented some technology that my researchers had to come up with and um, it's called uh, sensor-driven electronics. Um, these little detectors can be used, um, can be powered for decades from batteries and uh, they can detect, for example, very rare events that we otherwise wouldn't be able to listen for. Um, I used a few examples so we can detect uh, change in temperature, um, we can detect voices, we can detect cracks, we can, we can even do remote control. So it, a remote controller needs to listen for the control signal and that uses power and therefore you know, goes through batteries. Whereas we can listen for control signals for free. We don't really ever need to replace the batteries in, in your receiver. So that's quite new. And so I went on to talking about the implications of this, that I'm listening or this awareness, of, as I called it, could be very, very tiny and almost permanent, so tiny that you could build it into products. I gave a few good examples, like imagine the fire extinguisher that calls for its own replacement, and that could save lives, couldn't it? And I also mentioned maybe, maybe some problems. What if you were unaware of this awareness that people have built into things around us? Bernard's work is just one example of this kind of research that's going on here in Bristol. Uh, I remember back uh, last year at the Cabot Institute Annual Lecture, we had Bristol researcher Tom Scott, and he was speaking about something similar in a way, talking about diamond batteries made out of nuclear waste, which would have battery lives of thousands of years. So these technological innovations clearly have a lot of potential, and I don't want to sound too paranoid about Big Brother continually monitoring us, but I think it's important that we as researchers and, and in the general public think about how these innovations will be used. Who owns the intellectual property? Bernard Stark again. Who owns the knowledge? Someone asked that, didn't they? Um, that was quite interesting. Um, as a scientist, I need to decide who's going to own the knowledge. So I could write a research paper, put it out there, and then society owns the knowledge. And that's great. And it can't be patented. Or we could say... You know what, if we do that, no company will have an incentive to develop this for the benefit of society. So sometimes in order to get an idea out there, you've got to withhold it from the public, give it to a company, they've got the resources to roll it out, they will make some money from it, but society benefits from it. So it's really tricky what is going to be the best route forward for society. So the second speaker was Julia Biggs from Earth Sciences. And she was talking about natural hazards, which is a theme more conventionally aligned with the Cabot Institute. And I caught up with her after her 
talk to discuss how new satellite technology is helping improve their science, which is monitoring volcanoes and helping to predict eruptions. All right, so the title of my talk was Watching the World's Volcanoes. So globally, there's about 1,500 volcanoes, and about 800 million people uh, live within 100 kilometers of a volcano. And there are fatalities happening almost every year as a result of this. But actually, there haven't been any major disasters recently, and that's probably because we can evacuate people away from it. So, so how do we do that? You know, unlike earthquakes, where there's no um, kind of uh, warning signal that an earthquake is going to hit, actually volcano, volcanic eruptions, before that happens, magma has to make its way close to the surface. And there's lots of little signals that we can pick up. Um, so some of them are little earthquakes. And what I work on mostly is the way the pressure builds up beneath a volcano and causes the surface of the earth above it to deform. Um, and we can actually measure that with ground-based techniques, like things like GPS that we can install on the volcano. But actually, that's very expensive. And particularly in developing countries, there are many volcanoes that aren't monitored. Um, and what I've been working on specifically is how we can use satellite techniques to do exactly that. Um, and looking to the future, we're now working with a new satellite that's just been launched in the last couple of years, which has completely changed the frequency of which the volcanoes are covered um, by satellite imagery. Um, and that means that each volcano is now covered about every 12 days. And by automatically processing that data, we're actually building a near real-time monitoring system where you can actually look at your chosen volcano and see what the most recent satellite images are and what that tells us about the deformation of that volcano. Now, Julia's science might not be as innovative or inventive in the same way as Bernard's in that her science is slightly more descriptive. Um, but saying that, still the availability of data, access to data and the sharing of information is not always straightforward, as Julia Biggs explained to me. Yeah, well, I mean, satellite data, a lot of the radar data particularly, is traditionally uh, military. Um, and then there's been generations of commercial satellites. And what we're using now is actually publicly funded satellites um, from the European Space Agency. And they've got a fantastic data policy. But actually, there's a lot of information out there that just isn't available, even to scientists. And it certainly isn't available to the general public. The satellites are launched by a small number of very wealthy nations, but they're actually studying the entire Earth's surface. So as a volcanologist, actually what we struggle to do a lot um, is, is communicate. You know, we, we often get requests from developing countries who need the data, but it's a full-time job trying to keep up with that. And there isn't a central organisation who's actually funding us to do that at the moment. This is something that we have to um, do a little, almost on the side, almost pro bono, is actually this communication aspect with the, vo uh, with the volcano observatories in developing countries. But it's really important that we, can, we continue to do that. Um, but actually, there is a, uh, and in order to do that, we really do need access to, to free, publicly available data. But there's also a flip side. So a good example is recently, um, there's a volcano on Bali that's been in the news a lot that's actually started erupting recently. Um, and when that first started happening, people got hold of this free, publicly available data, started processing it. But they were kind of new to that technology, and they didn't realize that actually water vapor in the atmosphere causes a huge signal. And somewhere like Bali, there's a lot of water vapor in the atmosphere. So they just did standard routine processing. They saw this huge apparent signal and started tweeting that the, 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 the volcano in Bali was moving by, by meters. And it's actually just not true. It's just water vapor in the atmosphere. And somebody like me who's been looking at satellite images for 10 or 20 years, this is quite obvious. But it meant that we had to really move very quickly. Instead of focusing on communicating with the, the appropriate authorities in the developing countries, a lot of our time was actually spent tweeting correct information, trying to correct misinformation that was out there and causing panic. So that, that free access to some quite complicated uh, data that actually takes quite a lot of experience to, to analyze actually caused almost as many problems um, so I think it's actually really interesting to understand how we can make sure that co the correct information is provided to the, the people who, who need it, rather than just anybody with access to data starting to influence how decisions about things like evacuations are made.
The final speaker at the Cabot Annual Lecture was Professor Richard Owen from the Department of Management in the Faculty of Social Sciences. And I met up with him a couple of days after the, the event to discuss some of these ideas about responsible innovation in a bit more detail. My interest is in innovation and I, I, I'm a professor of, of innovation management and I'm interested in innovation but I'm interested in innovation as an activity that creates futures. So that's not to say that innovation doesn't have a past and a history and it comes from somewhere. But fundamentally I'm interested in innovation and science and technological development leading to innovation and their ability to create futures and, and sometimes they can be quite profound. So if you look back through the history of science and technology developments, some of the things that we live with now have been created in the past by visions and the disruptive technologies and innovations of those that, that have come before us. And, and innovations can create futures in, in, in quite profound ways. And if you think about some of the contemporary things that we're talking about, we're talking about you know, artificial intelligence and the future impacts on the world of work or the impact of social media on, on children. There's, there's a huge, or gene editing, CRISPR-Cas9 and, and, and so on. There's a whole range of different technologies that are, are creating futures in deeply uncertain ways. And my fundamental question for the evening was, how do we engage with those futures? And when I mean we, I mean not just within the university, but with people outside the university and our communities. And how do we... Um, have a discussion about what kind of futures we want those innovations and technologies to create. So no, it's, it's worth pointing out that not everything that we do in universities in terms of research is, is, is creating innovations. There's a lot of knowledge that is just about describing about how the world works, about our environment, like your PhD, and, uh, or about how societies work, about how economies work. But actually there's quite a lot of work that's done aimed specifically at developing new technologies and then linking them into innovation. And I think when we start to think about that, that's where we have to have a conversation around how we um, engage with those futures and how we take responsibility for those. And really my talk centred on a particular example of geoengineering was about that. It sounded quite interesting that this wasn't originally your background. What inspired you just to start thinking about this, uh, you know, idea of innovation and, and doing science kind of ethically what what prompted you to to look that way well i mean yeah so i've been i've spent time in universities i spent time working in regulation and in policy consciously make it move into that so i could understand more about how it worked so i worked at the environment agency i was i was head of environment health and i led on new technologies and then i came back into to develop this idea of responsible innovation and i think the key thing that, and why universities are such great places is because if they get it right, they're places where you can be creative and you can really challenge and ask different questions. And, and when I was a scientist, what I found was I was generating loads of data on climate change records or the impacts of, for example, pollutants on coral reefs. And then people were using my data for lots of different political purposes or ends and, and re-questioning the data and... Uh, in some cases resampling and they, and they always concurred by the way I was lucky enough that when they resampled it I, I didn't thankfully don't get it wrong but, but I started saying you know well, how is my data being used and that meant I had to start asking questions of social science not just of science and I got increasingly interested in knowledge politics and governance and, and issues of ethics and regulation and, and really that's where 
I've been lucky enough or fortunate enough to have been able to go to for the last 10 or so years. And uh, one of the things I remember from your talk, you you mentioned this idea of innovation through to regulation and this, this time lag idea and how we could get this technological lock-in. So if something was developed and people got quite familiar with it, I suppose from a Cabot Institute, maybe on an environmental side of things, could that be something like the extensive use of plastics at the moment where people didn't necessarily realise that, oh, wow, this wonderful indestructible product is in fact indestructible and we can't get rid of it. It's all floating around in the ocean. Uh, you know, so I thought that was quite interesting. And you, you mentioned as well you had like four, was it four different ways that you thought this could be addressed and, you know, yeah. issues where this could be addressed, if you could so, say something like that. So first of all, um, it, part of what you're asking is about how we govern science and innovation now and and you may recall I, I was talking about the predominant way that we govern innovation and, and I'm generalizing and simplifying a lot is certainly in western societies is 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 we allow the market to say right the market dictates what's the most appropriate and desirable end use for new products and services but we know that actually the market can sometimes get it spectacularly wrong. So we've brought in progressively since the 19, really the Second World War 1970s. Uh, re- regulation, for example, in pharmaceuticals or in, in industrial chemicals. But the problem is it's quite narrowly focused. It focuses on health risks or safety, product safety. It doesn't think about the impact of, of uh, for example, social media on children. And those kinds of social dimensions, it is quite narrowly focused. And so as a result, and because it's, it's evidence-based, there's usually huge time lags between innovation. And I'm sure if you do you remember how long it was. Yeah, did you did you say thirty to a hundred years? Yeah. So that was a study that was done by the European Environment Agency called. It's a great book uh, called Late Lessons from Early Warnings. They've done two books actually, and it was a review of a kind of a bunch of different stuff technologies, and and, and they found on average that time lag between us innovating getting enough knowledge about the effect that, um, uh, that, that they have on the environment, for example, and then bringing in regulation from between 30 and 100 years. And it d- does depend. It depends if you're developing an app or you're developing a chemical. So that's the response that we developed, the framework for responsible innovation that I talked about in the talk, which means actually what do we do in universities to, to address the fact that regulation is really important, but it's not enough, and what's our role responsibilities? And so effectively what I said was we need to be more anticipatory think through what we're doing in universities in terms of science science leading through to technologies and innovation and what else it might or might not do i said we have to reflect more on why we're doing it the purposes of it and the motivations for it and we need to talk about it more and then respond to what people think of it and to emerging knowledge because of course these are really uncertain things it's not a question of i develop something a in the lab and then (laughs) b happens 20 years later that's not how it works so it's a kind of you may remember, Alan, I was talking about it being iterative and an embedded thing. And, and we do do bits of that, but the key thing is we don't do it all together as part of the science and innovation process. So there you have it. A bit of a glimpse into some of the challenges we face in research at the University of Bristol and within the Cabot Institute. How do you think research and innovation should be managed? Well, let's, let's keep the, the debate going. Just come on, get in touch with the Cabot Institute on Facebook or on Twitter. 
come along to some of our events. And I'd just like to end on some Cabot Institute news and welcome the incoming Cabot Institute director, Professor Gemma Wadham, who will be starting in August 2018. She'll be doing a bit of a meet and greet or a Q&A session, whatever you want to call it, on Wednesday the 13th of June in the Queen's Building. So if you're interested in that and you're interested in getting involved in the Cabot Institute a little bit more, do come along and have a bit of a chat with your fellow Cabotiers and you can find out more about that on the Cabot Institute website. So that's, that's all for me for this episode and I look forward to speaking to you all again soon. I'm Alan Kennedy and you've been listening to Cabotcast. Cheers. Thank you.